week we came to the end of 2 Corinthians 2, uh, and in the last verse, Paul says, we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. You know, there are many people who preach, they say, the word of God, but they corrupt it. They take it out of context, they twist it, they make it mean what they want it to mean. But he says, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. He gives the inspiration, the guidance, the help to speak the things of God in sincerity and in truth as opposed to corrupting it. So, you know, you just have to take God's words as he gives them. You can't twist them, you can't diminish them, you can't add to them. You take them as they are, and you accept them for what they are, whether you like it or whether you don't. Uh, you can't take from or add to. That's the last of the book of Revelation. It says anybody that does that will not be in the kingdom of God. It's like the prophets of old, you know, when... God gave them through visions or through dreams or through an angel speaking or even Christ himself speaking in some cases. He gave them a message to deliver to Israel and they were not to, as he put it in one place, let one word drop to the ground. They were to use and say everything God gave them. They didn't have the right to edit, if you will. But everything he gave them, they were to speak and live by, just as now we have the written word as well, not just that which was given to the prophets, but that which has been written down uh, by the prophets and by the apostles. And he says in Matthew 4, 4 and Luke 4, 4, to live by every word of God. It's also in Deuteronomy. I don't, it's a 28, somewhere, I forget now. Somewhere in Deuteronomy it says the same thing. So, we can't corrupt it. We have to use it just as it comes to us, correctly understood. And everybody says, well, I am correctly understanding it as they jerk it out of context and twist it around to get what they want. Herbert Armstrong used to tell that story about uh, the preacher that didn't like women's wearing their hair up. And uh, he went to Matthew 24, that preacher did, and uh, there it says, he who is on his housetop, let him not come down. Or if you're in the field, don't go back to the house. You know the story about when it's time to flee to Zion. And uh, he just cut into that scripture where he wanted to. He even broke a word in half. And the way he said it was, top not come down. That's uh, that was one he used over and over to uh, to illustrate how people can twist and malign the word of God. And he who is on the housetop, not let him come down. Had nothing to do with a woman's head or her top knot or her hairstyle, but he made it that way. So I suppose the women in his congregation beautifully let their hair down. I don't know, but. Uh, we can't twist it. We can't use it to our purposes or devices, but take it as it is given. So let's go with that note into chapter 3. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Uh, should we be patting ourselves on the back because we are using the Word of God in sincerity and not corrupting it or diminishing it or, or whatever? Or do we need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Do we do what God says and do it sincerely, and then write letters to each other to pat ourselves on the back to tell us each other how good we are? He says, you are our epistle written in our hearts known and read of all men. He says we don't need letters going back and forth showing how good we are or how well we're doing. Uh, you know, that was, that's the way the Pharisees did it. They wrote their good deeds on their long white cuffs, their phylacteries as they called them, 
so that men could come up and read all the good deeds they'd done and how wonderful they were. Though Paul had been a Pharisee, and he understood that mentality quite well, I'm sure. So he says, we don't need letters, we don't need phylacteries or anything else. He says, you, as the people that we've been teaching, are our epistle. People can see you, see your obedience to God, see your dedication to him and to his people, and they can read that. So he said, he's encouraging them really to be that kind of an epistle. You know, when you write somebody a letter, you want everything you say to be true, and you want to put it in such a way that the communication is good and they won't misunderstand or misread what you're saying, because that's very easy to do. So he had to be careful how he wrote this book and anything else. But he says, you're our epistle written in our hearts. Uh, he had those people in Corinth in his mind and in his heart as being something special and important to God, just as you and I sitting here today are special and important to God. Now that we need to commend ourselves and pat ourselves on the back, he tells those in Zechariah 2 who come and gather in Zion that they are the apple of his eye. Well, do we need to pat each other and, and uh, uh, pet each apple? Or do we just simply need to be ripe and be juicy and be good and be tasteful to God and to man? That's the way we should be. An epistle in heart, not on paper. And everybody should be able to read us and see the Spirit of God and the mind of God and the obedience to God in us. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us. So he actually calls us an epistle. Uh, just like I write a letter to somebody, you are there written in flesh. Your life is an epistle instead of Words on paper, you are a living testimony, a living epistle. Do you like to receive a letter that is full of lies and false accusations and miscommunication? No, it, it irritates you, it frustrates you, because you know that a lot of what is written is not true and is not good and is not sincere. It might have been written by your enemies who detest you. And they'll find anything they can bad about you to try to show. So he says, we try not to write that way, but you are a living epistle. And people should be able to read you like they'd read a book and see Christ in you. So this is a, a beautiful analogy, really, here. And he goes on to explain that. An epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. The Ten Commandments were written in stone. And his law, his word, his way is to be written in the table of our heart so that we take to heart everything God says and we put it to practice in our lives and then we become a lively, living epistle of the way of God. People should be able to read a message in us, a message of the love of God. It should show. That's why, that's what it ties in with letting your light shine. Let your, your, let your life be an epistle written in the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Interesting statement. We are a living epistle with the Spirit of God, the mind of God, the words of God written in our hearts. And we trust, through Christ, 
to God. That we can be that. That He can work through us to become that. So that as we walk through life, our path is directed and guided and led by the Spirit of God, and people can see that. Now, many of them will not like that. It didn't say anybody would like it here. It just says they can see it. And most of them will not like it because they hate the way of God and they don't like God or His words. But He says, you're supposed to walk worthy of this and through Christ, this conduct is Godward, that our heart is turned to Him through Christ and we become an epistle of the heart. Now, your heart has to make room for that. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's full of all kinds of disease and doubt and fear and sin and everything you can name that is contrary to God. So you have to push aside the normal human way of thinking in the human heart and replace it with the things of God and His Spirit so that He recognizes your heart and your heart beats with Him. Now, what did David's, or God say of David? Uh, now I can't say it. That <laughs> uh, David is a man after my own heart. And that's what Paul is telling us here, that our heart should be the same as God's heart, that they can be close together. Now, as married people, you can hug and hug your hearts together and hear each other's heartbeat. And you have to be in synchronization in order for that to happen. Now, when there's ill feeling or ill will or a battle or a disagreement or whatever, you might each be hugging the other outside edge of the bed. Or you might be back to back because you don't want to face each other for whatever reason. Those things happen in any couple's life at one time or another. And if they tell you differently, you know they're lying. Some people is more often than others, yeah, but uh, we can get sideways at times. So, for us to have the kind of relationship that Christ wants with His church, we have to be heart to heart. We have to be face to face. That's what He tells us He's going to do. He's had His face turned from us, like I described the couple in bed together. They're married, but they're not ready to look at each other in the eye at the moment. So they turn their face away and maybe turn over uh, to show their contempt or frustration or anger or whatever. But he says, when we get our attitude and our heart in tune, in rhythm with his, then he is going to turn his face to us instead of from us. And then he will smile and bless us and comfort us and strengthen us and turn our righteousness into his righteousness. I'm speaking of Isaiah 54 there. Our self-righteousness doesn't work. It has to be his righteousness. And our hearts have to beat together. He says, when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me, and I will be found of you. I'm speaking of Jeremiah there saying that. So that's what he wants, is our hearts beating together, face to face. Not as it has been these last 30 years, where he's been basically opposed to the way we are. And if we do enough repenting and turning to him, he says, then our hearts will beat together, And there will be closeness that we need. So, David was a man after his own heart. He thought like God. He made mistakes. He got further from God than he ought to have been. And when he made mistakes and he saw them, 
he repented and said, oh, God, forgive me and clean my heart. Cleanse me. Make me pure and holy so I can be close to you again. And that's what we have to do. So it's in the fleshly tables of the heart that we are to be an epistle. And we can achieve this through Christ toward God with our attitudes and heart. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So we can't be what we want to be. We can't be sufficient to earn salvation. You can't earn it in any case. Because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be saved, ultimately, uh, we have to be sinless. We have to be completely cleansed. And our sufficiency won't get us there. Now, we work in salvation. He tells us to grow and overcome, and if we overcome, he will grant us salvation. He'll give it to us. Now, we, we will not have overcome everything by the time Christ returns. Our human nature is such, and Satan is such, that you won't have overcome everything. But he expects some overcoming. And he will judge each of us based on <coughs> our abilities, our talents, our life, our attitude, our background. And he will decide in each case who has overcome sufficiently that he feels like giving eternal life to. So we're all different, and we're all judged separately and individually, and we cannot make that judgment toward each other. It is God's judgment of us. But he says he works his salvation in us. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot earn or get salvation on our own. We are insufficient for that, is what Paul is saying. Our, our sufficiency comes from God. So he works his salvation from day one. You cannot come to understand his truth until he opens your mind and your heart to it. So he is the one that does it first. Now he says, if you seek me, you will find me. But he is the one that has to open the mind to your, of your seeking and show you. So it starts really that way. And you might not have even begun to seek him unless he had in some way goaded you or directed you or you had some kind of an accident or a family problem or a personal difficulty and you decided, I think I better go find God somewhere, <laughs> you know. So he might even do some of those things and let some things happen so that you might say, I think I need God. Where is he? Where can I find him? Then he opens your mind to begin to understand. And from there he works with you and works his salvation through you, you working at it, but him providing the spirit, the power, the guidance, the direction that you need to achieve it. So, our sufficiency truly is from God. Verse 6, Who also made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Old Testament was essentially a physical covenant with physical promises. If you will obey me, I'll bless you, I'll bless your, the birth of your children, I'll bless your animals, I'll bless the land. Uh, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, where he lays out those promises. But there's very little said in the Old Testament about the Spirit. There were a few who understood some of those things and understood that there is something coming in the future. Among those, you could name David and, and Abraham and Moses and, and some of the patriarchs who did understand somewhat the spirit of the law. 
But still, they were under the administration of the physical law. So if people broke the law, they could be executed forthwith. <clears throat> Committed fornication or adultery, stole, well, not stealing, you didn't, they didn't kill you for that. <clears throat> but there were death penalties for certain crimes, murder. And then there were other penalties for other sins, like with a thief, you had to pay back three times or whatever it was, depending on the circumstance. So it was simply a physical law with primarily physical bless, or blessings or benefits. <laughs> and if you broke that law, you could die. It was just that simple. You do this, you get stoned. Now, it's not that way of the New Testament. <laughs> the Spirit gives life. If we worship God in spirit and in truth, then He will forgive our sins, and we do not have to die for them. See, there was no forgiveness of sin on an eternal basis in the Old Testament. You broke the law, you suffered the penalty. That's all there was to it. Now when we break the law, Christ's sacrifice is there to accept that penalty, and it is not held on our account. When we repent, when we ask forgiveness, God, through Christ's sacrifice, forgives us. Our biggest problem is forgiving each other, and forgiving ourselves sometimes, not understanding the spirit of the law. You know, some people still think in Old Testament terms. If you sin, they're going to stone you from now on. <laughs> they may not literally physically stone you, but they'll keep throwing rocks at you. Because they're still thinking in physical terms, not in the spirit of the law. Well, there is a huge difference. <clears throat> the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Mo Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. Now, God gave the Ten Commandments on Sinai in glory. And when Moses came down from being with God with those commandments written, it was a glorious moment. And his face shone, as we'll see here, with the glory of God. So Paul says there was a certain glory, even in the Old Testament, because that was a law that if you lived by, it gave you life and blessing. If you did not live by it, it gave you cursing and death. So it wasn't a bad law, but if you broke it, it was bad, because you suffered the consequences. Now, you and I today do not always suffer the consequences of our sins. Now, sometimes those around us do, sometimes we do, but when we sin... We think an evil thought, God doesn't strike us dead. If every time you thought an evil thought, God struck you dead, we would have an empty room here. Nobody around. <laughs> but back then, you could think sin. Christ said that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in different ways. You could think it as long as you didn't do it. Now, he says, don't even think it. That's, that's where he raised it to a spiritual level in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in that first sermon to the uh, apostles to be. So that now you're held accountable for even thinking it. And uh, you have to ask for forgiveness for your thoughts. But the Spirit is there to do that. Now, that, that administration of death was to be done away with. The commandments weren't done away with, but the administration of how 
it was handled when you broke the law, changed. See, the Ten, the Ten Commandments are still there. Christ said there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to establish it and fulfill it. That is, keep it perfectly. And But when you do break it, I'm not going to stone you. So it's the administration that's different. We still break the law just like we did or they did back then. But now the administration has changed where Christ died for us instead of us having to be literally stoned. And therefore we can be forgiven in his sacrifice. So there's an incredible difference there. It's a much much greater glory in the in the New Testament. So he says the glory of the Old Covenant or the glory of the commandments would be done away in terms of the way that it was administered and what happened when you sinned. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious or more glorious, far greater than of the past, where you can actually sin and walk away, nobody will throw rocks, and you can go to God Christ, the rock, and ask for forgiveness, and instead of being or having rocks thrown at you until you die, you go to the great rock, the foundation stone, and he saves you. So there's still a rock, even in the New Testament administration or administration, but it's Christ, and he is what? The living stone. Not a dead one. Before you got stoned to death. Now you go to the great stone and you're given life. What a difference. Much more glorious. So he says, verse 8, How shall not the administration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the administration of condemnation be glory... Much more does the administration of righteousness exceed in glory. Now you can be forgiven, you can your sins expunged, taken away, and you can be adjudged righteous. Now, if you were to look at yourself and look at the way your mind works, let's say through a week's time, and some of the things you might think or some of the things you might do. And you look at it and you'd say, I'm not very righteous. In fact, I was unrighteous this week. And it might be discouraging. Because we have to be righteous, not unrighteous. And we sin, and that puts us in a state of unrighteousness. Not righteous. So then we go to Christ, and His administration is, My blood was shed for you. I forgive you, and I count you as righteous. Now, after you repent and ask for forgiveness, and you still hang on to your opinion of unrighteousness, you are against God. Your heart and His are not beating close together because He has removed your sin and put you in a righteous state, but you're wallowing back here saying, well, I'm unrighteous. Isn't it more encouraging, encouraging to say, God has adjudged me righteous, and I don't sit and feel sorry for myself for the sins I committed? They've been lifted. They've been forgiven. We'll come Thursday night to Passover. And it's a formal dedication, rededication, a renewal of His death and life for us. And that's why it's so important. We have to look at that on a formal basis once a year. In a way, at atonement as well, where we are supposed to become at one with Him, our hearts beating together. Christ's heart will beat as he hugs and holds his wife, the 144,000 at the resurrection. The hearts beat together in time, in rhythm.
And we're working on that now. Each day, each week that goes by, we are to be working at our heart beating in rhythm with His. And when we sin, it begins to get out of rhythm. When we ask repentance and He forgives us, then they beat together again. Let's give each other that opportunity to do so. Let's see. Let's go to verse 12 then. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. We can speak openly and plainly about these things because they're true. And God is there to forgive us and to lead us to the sufficiency of righteousness that He desires. So if He forgives you, learn to forgive yourself. And learn to forgive each other. He says if we don't forgive each other, then He will not continue to forgive us. I don't know how many times, dozens and dozens and dozens of times I've quoted that. But it's one of the biggest issues that we have. Because the biggest problem in the church is self-righteousness. And we like to judge ourselves more righteous than somebody else. And he says, that all has to go away. He says, your righteousness stinks. You have to have my righteousness. And his is forgiveness and mercy. That's the administration of the Spirit. So, we have this hope that he does forgive us. Verse 13, And not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. The giving of the Ten Commandments was such a powerful, holy time that Moses' face was shining so brightly that he had to put a cover over it for the people to even look at it. When people say that the commandments are nasty, mean, ugly things, no, they're not. But the administration of those was ugly <laughs> if you got stoned to death. Now, you go to the rock Christ, and it's even more glorious. You know, you can walk away so relieved, so comforted to know that I, I talked to God and I admitted I've been a sinner and I've asked for forgiveness and to get up off your knees and know that he has granted you forgiveness and adjudged you then righteous instead of unrighteous because that sin has been removed. How much more glorious is that? I guess part of the glory in the Old Testament is the people who did the stoning would say, well, we took care of that. <laughs> oh. The gloriousness of forgiving and accepting a brother back, which is part of the thesis of this book, is so very important because that's where the real glory is, is in forgiveness. See, when Christ forgives us and it comes time for the resurrection and he forgives everything we've ever done up to that moment, it, it results in what? Gloriousness. This flesh changed the Spirit, and glory. So it is truly glorious that sin be forgiven and that we stand righteous before God. <clears throat> then he goes on to say in verse 14, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. The Pharisees were still laboring under the administration of death, in the Old Testament. They didn't want to admit their sins. They didn't want their sins to be found out because, in their view, you had to be stoned. Now, Paul had that attitude, too. He thought Christians were not following the Old Testament properly, so he was killing them, executing them. 
that veil was still over his mind of the Old Testament administration. And then he says, which veil is done away in Christ. So now we see clearly. We don't have the veil over our faces. And the glory of Christ needs to shine on our face. Uh, not just the glory that Moses had, but this is a greater glory. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. You can go back and read the, New Test- the Old Testament today. And you see so-and-so is supposed to be stoned for this or that. And you can begin to think, boy, that's awful. And it, it pulls a veil down, it's something you don't want to see. Uh, but it's done away. Now we don't kill you when you sin. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless... When it shall turn to the eternal, the veil shall be taken away. So when their heart, it, their heart, turns to God, then they'll see forgiveness, mercy, love, the mind and attitude of God. Instead of killing, it's forgiveness and saving. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the Spirit of the Eternal is, there is liberty. Now, when you were sinning in the Old Testament, removing somebody's landmark, or murdering, or fornicating, or whatever, you lived in fear that your liberty would go away. You either had to run to a city of refuge and stay there and not have liberty to move about all Israel, Or you could be stoned and thrown in a hole in the ground, and then you had no liberty at all. It was taken away. No movement of any kind. Now, we have the liberty of making mistakes, sinning, and being able to come and ask for forgiveness and the penalty being removed by the blood of Christ, and we're still at liberty to move about the country because the Spirit gives life. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the eternal, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the eternal. Now, if we obey him and he forgives us and our sin is expunged, taken away, we should be able to look like looking in a mirror with Christ, where we see each other face to face, and we become a mirror image of him. Now, he wants to marry a bride that is a mirror image of himself. So that they think alike, they act alike, they do the same things. And their eyes meet, and they're on the same page. Their hearts meet, and they're on the same page. The veil will be taken away. So, just like looking in a mirror, we should see the glory of Christ in our own eyes, in our own face and in our own heart. That takes some doing, but that's what our goal and our purpose is. He wants to look at us and see himself. We want to look at ourselves and see him. That's that's our goal and our purpose. Chapter 4 then, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. So he summarizes in that sense by saying, we're not under the administration of death anymore. When we do sin, we can be forgiven, not stoned. We have received mercy, forgiveness, and therefore we faint not. We don't give up. We don't say, "Uh uh-oh, I've sinned. I guess I better wait for somebody to start bringing a bucket of rocks. No, now we can repent and be strong be powerful, 
knowing that he accounts us as righteous. Blessed is he to whom God does not impute sin. Now that should be each and every one of us. When I've thought of that over the years, sometimes I've thought, well, who does he not impute sin to? Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, John, James, some of those who we hold in high esteem as prophets and apostles of God. But it doesn't stop there. He should not be imputing sin to any of us here today. Because we are seeking to turn our heart to him and to have it beating closely with his. And when we do sin, he's willing to forgive us. And sometimes he may even forgive us ahead of our repentance. He is very positive and he looks forward. And therefore, he just doesn't write that sin on our account. He doesn't impute it to us. He says, I know as soon as they receive that, they're going to ask me to forgive. They're going to turn from it. They'll try not to do it again. So I'm not putting it on their ledger. I won't even impute it. I won't even write it down. I know it's going to go away. Does God know you and me that well? That when we do screw up, he knows we're going to come and say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Please remove my sin. And he says to himself, ah, I never even bothered to write that one down. I knew I'd hear from you. That's the kind of relationship we need to develop. And that should be us to whom he does not impute sin. Now, you could get vain and egocentric and say, well, actually, I'm so righteous, I so very very rarely sin that um, God doesn't have to write mine down because I'm that good. Well, that's that's a that's a perversion of the Scripture that Paul was talking about earlier. We faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now that's a pretty good mouthful. It's hard to get that whole thought all at once. But he says, we faint not. Let's break it down a bit. But we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Most things that we think wrong are hidden. We don't walk around telling everybody all the bad thoughts we just had. Uh, we, we would not do that. But we have renounced those things. We do not allow them or don't want to allow them in our minds and hearts. We're putting them away, renounce them, get, getting rid of them. Not walking in craftiness. How do you walk in craftiness? Trying to find an advantage over somebody? Trying to slyly do something to them? Uh, hurt them in some way? Steal from them? Whatever. Uh, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully. Not twisting it to your own wants or needs or desires, but accepting it as it is. Uh, like the preacher with the top knot come down. He was twisting it to his own purposes, not wasn't even talking about hair there. Handling the word of God deceitfully. Don't do that. Another example came to my mind. Now, now it's kind of moved out of it. Where was I going with that? Uh, oh, well, yeah, I know what it was. We got the Passover coming up. And uh, we used to do the bread and the wine, the opposite of what we now do it. Now, before, oh, no, I mean the foot washing and the bread and the wine were reversed. So used to, we would do the bread and the wine first and then the foot washing. 
No, no, we do the foot washing first. I'll get it straight here in a minute. We did the foot washing first, and what helps me get that straight is there were people that say, I wonder if the preacher washed his hands before he broke the bread, after washing feet. Uh, because it always seemed to, to be an anomaly there, you know. Did he go in the bathroom and wash his hands? But we saw in the book of Luke that we had it backward. So what did we do? We said, well, been doing it wrong all these years. Let's get it right. Removes the question. Now you have the bread and wine first. Then you do the foot washing. And you don't have to worry about whether he got his hands dirty foot washing. Now all you have to wonder is, did he pick his nose first? <laughs> I mean, you can find something to worry about if you want, wherever. But now we got it straight. But you know how some some people interpreted that when they saw that indeed that's what Luke said, is that you have the wine and the bread and then the foot washing? Instead of accepting that as part of the Word of God, they said, well, Luke wasn't there. He wasn't an eyewitness. And therefore, we throw out his testimony. It's in the Bible, part of the Word of God, but we'll throw out the book of Luke because, well, I mean, if you're going to throw out that one passage, you might as well throw the whole book out because he wasn't an eyewitness to any of it. But he said he went very carefully to the eyewitnesses and checked with each one of them personally to be sure he was getting the story straight in case the way they each Matthew, Mark, and John may have written it might have been a little confusing or something. He says, no, I'm setting the story straight. I talked to every one of them and I got exactly how they saw it. And that's what I wrote. And God put it in the Bible. But some will twist it. Well, all right, got to do away with Luke. Well, that's taking from the Bible. And you don't go to the kingdom of God if you do that. Is that clear? We can't use the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So instead of twisting it or using it to our own purposes, we use it to grow and become like God and have everybody look at us and say, there is a likeness of God. And people kind of freak when you say, well, so-and-so is a type of Christ. Uh, Zerubbabel will be a type of Christ. And then if you recognize maybe who Zerubbabel is going to be, and you call him a type of Christ, it, to some people sometimes that sounds like blasphemy. No, it's not. Every one of us is to be a type of Christ. We should be individually as much like him as we can be. And therefore, when somebody sees us, they say, that person is Christ-like. He's like Christ. He's a type of Christ. That's what you and I are all supposed to be. Now, if we're accusing, Christ doesn't do that. If we're forgiving, Christ does do that. See how it works? So when you are accusing somebody, you are not Christ-like. You are Satan-like. When you're forgiving somebody, that's the opposite of Satan, and it's like Christ. It's just that simple. All right, let me see here. Um, so everyone should look at us and see Christ is summing that end of chapter 2 of verse 2 up verse 3 but if our gospel be hid it is hid to them that are lost or unsaved or still being lost so they got to read you what is what is the gospel? What is an epistle? Well, he's he's bringing it down to you and me. The gospel should be us. We should be 
uh, keeping the Word of God in our life should be a preaching of the gospel. Silently. But each one of us is supposed to preach the gospel. Now, don't take that and say you've been called to preach. No, you preach by the way you live. <coughs> That's the way you preach. So, don't hide it. Live the gospel. And then those who are not yet being saved by God can recognize the light in you. And isn't that what he tells us? There were to be a light on the hill in Zion, and the whole world is to look to us as a type of Christ, or the source of the gospel. Those that are lost, in whom the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. Satan doesn't want the world to see the Father and the Son. So he has blinded the whole world so they cannot see God. Now what's Christ going to do? He's going to come and chain Satan and put him away so that that blindness will be removed and they can see God. And Christ will be, and the Father, will be here in the New Jerusalem during the millennium. And they can all go there and see God. They can also see His Word and His way of life. But they can't do it now. But we could set an example of light in the world that has been darkened by Satan. And his influence is incredible. Beyond anything we can imagine. He can twist people around so fast and so furiously that they don't know which side's up. <clears throat> Even those who do understand. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Emmanuel the Lord, and ourselves your servants for his sake. <clears throat> so he says we're not talking about ourselves here. We're talking about him and us setting an example to the world of him in becoming types of Christ, becoming like Christ, Christ-like images of God, just as Christ is the image of his Father. We are to become the same. Well, we're about out of time, and that's a good thought to stop on right there.